Hey everyone, welcome to the Hug Church Podcast. You're listening to episode number six. My name is Eunice and my husband Eddie and I started Hug Church with a vision to create a community of healing, unconditional love, and growth. We're located in the heart of downtown Fullerton and want to welcome all you locals to join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. So in today's message, Eddie begins by asking this question. What are some of the greatest speeches that have ever been given? The first that pops to mind is Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. This next one, well, I'll let Eddie do the sharing. Steve Jobs' keynote of the iPhone in 2007. Wow, it tells a lot about our our Western values and cultures, right? Um, But I remember this talk, okay? And there is this it's like it's like boring, 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 boring. Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, right? But there's this two-minute slice where, like, my my arm and my whole body is just, like, starts, like, goosebumping and getting chills, right? And it's when he says, and it gets to the climax of this talk, this keynote. And he says, Apple is going to release three new devices. And everyone's like, woo, he's going to say it. He's going to say it. And the first one, he says, a widescreen iPod, a widescreen touch iPod. And everyone's like, woo, widescreen touch. I mean, to us, who uses the iPod anymore, right? But back then, everyone's like, a widescreen iPod, woo. And then he says, a revolutionary mobile phone. And this is when everyone goes pandemonium. What? Apple's going to make a phone? Goodness gracious. And he says, an internet communicating device. And people were like, yeah, great, <laughs> right? Let's go back to the phone. And then this is when the beauty of Steve Jobs' communication ability, he says, a widescreen touch iPod, a revolutionary mobile phone, an internet, uh, uh, internet communication device. And he goes back and says, a widescreen iPod, a revolutionary mobile phone, and an internet communicating device. And literally, you see the crowd get it, that he's talking about one thing. And, he, and it's, the, the, it's like the audience finally understands, oh my gosh, he's not talking about three devices. He's talking about one device. And this is like the crowd goes wild. It was an amazing moment in human history, okay? And... And, and other than Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, okay? And, and, and you know, and, and really the legacy, okay, of Steve Jobs. The legacy of Steve Jobs, I would say, is convenience, okay? This has made life more convenient than ever, okay? Uh, and companies like, uh, uh, I mean, I watch Bird Box on my phone, right? Uh, in, when I was sleeping, like, because I couldn't sleep at night, and I just watched Bird Box on my phone. That's amazing. I watched a movie that just released on my phone. Do you know how crazy that is? That, like, imagine, uh, like, can you imagine that? I can buy any, I don't have to walk into Best Buy and talk to those, like, you know, like, hide from the Geek Squad guys and talk to the guy with the polo shirt anymore to buy any electronic device. I can literally just tap and buy anything like this this thing has made our life so convenient okay and it's amazing i think it's good okay i buy stocks on my phone it's like with one touch it's amazing okay but this is the thing sometimes convenience convenience could make us sell out on our vision because we we have this visions and goals and dreams 
But we have become so like lazy and fat and addicted to convenience, i.e., this thing, right? That that we're almost at this point unwilling to let go of that convenience to fulfill our vision. Let me give you an example, okay? So one of uh, the visions I think that my wife has in our life, one of our visions is for our household to be a plastic-free household. Yeah, I think it's, an, it's a great vision. She is very concerned about plastic uses. But here's the thing. Other than the iPhone, plastic is the other number, like the king, or I don't know if it's the king or queen of convenience, but plastic is the king or queen of convenience, okay? Because do you know that straws are made of plastic? <laughs> Plastic cups, Ziplocs. I, 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 I have this argument with my wife, like, where are all the Ziploc bags? I need Ziplocs. And she's like, babe, we don't do Ziplocs here. And I'm like, oh, like why are you wrecking my life? I need the Ziplocs, okay? Like, and, 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 and it's funny, but yeah, like, I, I support us being a Ziploc-free house because... Eunice is making a stand. She's willing to sacrifice convenience to have this vision, all right? And there are ethical and environmental reasons why plastic consumption will ruin our life. Just to give you one statistic, okay? Plastic, okay, uh, a straw, you use it for about five seconds. But that five-second straw that you throw away will not deteriorate for another 400 years. So it doesn't make sense that for, to create something that we only use for maybe five to 15 seconds... And we can't get rid of it for another four or five hundred years. Anyway, so that's just, that's just, that's neither here nor there, okay? Another thing, another vision that I have, all right? I would love to be vegan. Anyone like a vegetarian or vegan? I think that's another, for other ethical reasons I have, right? But again, convenience, right? It's hard to go to a place that has fast, cheap, and tasty food that has a vegan or vegetarian option, Okay? convenience. It's very, very difficult, okay? So I'm finding that, that if we are unwilling to inconvenience our lives or sacrifice convenience, I would argue that our vision is not big enough, all right? Our vision is not big enough because we're unwilling to inconvenience our life, and, and it's too small. It's, it's not big enough. And I, I see some very dis, dis, discouraged kind of looks right now because it's like, oh my goodness, I just discovered what my vision might possibly be, Eddie. And now you're saying I have to start from scratch. I have to start all over. Possibly this might not be my vision. No. Okay. When I say, when I say um, bigger or big enough, okay, when I say big, I don't mean higher, okay, like higher goals, like more, more money, okay, or just more or higher. When I say big enough, I actually mean more like, uh, like deep, okay. Our visions are not deep enough, all right, and I mean more meaning, okay, more meaning, more impact is what I'm talking about, okay? Our visions are not big enough, or I should say maybe our visions are not deep enough, okay? Where we're willing to inconvenience ourselves or give up convenience, 
Now, um, recently my father was in town from Korea, and my father is, uh, he, he consistently gives me this word of advice. My, my father thinks he's dying. He's like, he's like old, and he just like thinks he's dying, and he constantly wants to pass on this wisdom onto me, okay? And he's had it all. He's had the wealth. He's had the, you know, he's had the Rolls Royce. He's had, he's had it all, okay? But my father keeps saying this one thing to me. He says, Eddie, wealth and success is not about how much you have when you die, but it's about who is around you when you die. And this is something he keeps saying to me over and over. I'm just like, dude, I don't need to know that. You, you, <laughs> I think you need, to, you need that lesson more than me, man. Okay? So, <laughs> but he constantly is trying to pass down that way. And I'm just letting because he's my father, right? So he's constantly passing down that wisdom. It's like, it's not about what you have, okay? But it's about who is around. And, and, and if you know me, I think the problem... Uh, with this question of what is your vision is problematic. Okay? Because what you automatically go to having. Vision is about having, right? And last week I talked about with a have approach, it, it doesn't work. Or it's a victim mentality. Because you, you don't have enough. You always need more to have a bigger vision, right? But vision, it, it, the way that we talked about last week with Paul, it is a be-first approach. It is a be-focused, be-centered approach, all right? So what is your vision already is a have-focused have approach towards vision, okay? And what I like to reframe is the question is who who is my vision who is my vision i think that is a more helpful question when it talks about vision to to make our vision deeper have more meaning have more impact and possibly if we go down this road maybe just maybe we will be willing to inconvenience our life sacrifice the the idol of convenience for our callings and our vision, all right? And the reason, the reason why, where I get this is from one of my heroes, who is the Apostle Paul, okay? And so it, uh, we're going to go and, and read some of the things that he says. So Paul, okay, uh, I started thinking about this, this, this idea of who is our vision, making our vision deeper, making it more impactful, making it more meaningful to the point where you will give up your convenience. You will inconvenience your life. And I, I think about Paul, who, who insanely inconvenienced his life, okay? And there's, there's a very, very famous passage that he says in Romans, right? But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? Okay, he's talking about those who don't know God yet. Those who don't know Jesus, those who have never heard the gospel, okay? He's thinking about that. How are they going to know who this God is? How are they going to believe on if, the, if, if, if how are they going to believe if they have never even heard about him? And how are they going to hear about it unless someone tells them? And it, he, he starts building this, this argument that if I don't go, 
if, I, if someone doesn't take this mantle, then how are these people ever going to hear the gospel? If no one else is willing, right? How are these people ever going to hear if I don't stand up, if I don't go, if I don't speak out, right? And he starts building this, and we see this more and more develop in Paul's life and his theology. Another passage um, that, uh, that, that kind of... Uh, uh, um, depict this idea comes from uh, Acts, okay? It's a very, very famous passage when, when Paul, he's just trying to decide where to go, where to go next, because he doesn't know, right? He's, and, and, and at this point in, in uh, Acts, only Jews have heard the gospel, okay? Except Cornelius, I think. Cornelius is a Gentile, all right? That, that was Acts chapter 10, all right? But up the first 16 chapters of Acts, the gospel's only been really towards the Jews. They go to each city and only convert the Jews. They only tell the Jews. The church is Jews, okay? But Paul has been given this vision or this task that the gospel goes out towards the nations, all right? All people will hear and, and be embraced and will be a part of this thing called the church in the kingdom. So Paul is trying to push the gospel, he's, he's just like, where do I go? And some, some of us feel like that, right? Where do I go next? Do I go here? Do I go there? Do I go to this school? Do I go to this job? Do I date this girl? Do I, you know, whatever, right? And, and, and Paul, he goes one direction. He's like, okay, I'm going to go east. Because if I go east, it's, 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 good. it's the right strategy. But he keeps going, and it just doesn't work out. One after another, it just something blocks him. Something keeps him from going east. And so he's just like, gosh, I don't know what to do, man. But one night, it says that Paul had a vision, okay? A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. All right. Again, again, it's not his vision. What propelled him to go to Macedonia was this was a was a picture of a person, a person begging, pleading, crying out, come and help us. Come and save us. We need you. And that became so deep into his psyche and his soul. All right. Now, here's the thing. Paul could have gone to Macedonia. He could have decided to go, but what drew him there was, was this person that he met in a dream or in a vision that he saw. He, he probably saw the pain. He probably heard the cry, the suffering, and it propelled him to go there. All right? And again, this is, this is one of the, uh, you know, Paul's vision was to bring the gospel outside of the, of the Jewish race, outside of Jerusalem, across the whole world, especially the Greek and Roman world, all right? And this is one of the pivotal images, pivotal moments that help Paul go, despite everything. You know, he gets jailed immediately right after this event, actually, all right? Again, adversity and inconvenience happens right after, but he keeps going. He keeps going further and crazier, actually, all right? But there's a, there's, there's a part of Paul's life that doesn't get a lot of coverage or, talk about, uh, or doesn't get talked about a lot. But I think 
not only is Paul known towards moving the gospel to the Gentiles and, and the Greeks and the non-Jewish world, one of Paul's legacies and one of Paul's vision was racial reconciliation. Racial reconciliation. Because Jews, Jewish Christians, didn't really want to do anything with non-Jewish Christians. They thought that, well, that's cute and all, but like we really only care about our own people. Okay? And Paul was frustrated to see that that the gospel, this 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 calling that God has, this plan that God has had, the mission of Jesus was to make all of us God's children. But he was dealing with this separation between two races. They couldn't intermingle. And so if you read Paul's letters, it is this racial tension that he's dealing with. That's another part of his vision or his mission. And you know how he does that? He decide, He has this idea or plan. I'm not sure. Maybe God inspired or not. But he, desi- he decides. It's very smart, actually. He decides to get all the Gentile non-Jewish churches to give the Jewish church a lot of money. <laughs> okay, he's, an, he's like a businessman, an entrepreneur, right? It's like, then maybe this gift, this loving gesture will reconcile, all right? Now, I, I will say, you, you laugh at this like, oh, that's so transactional, right? I will say, if you have an estranged relationship or just not a deep relationship with your parents, give them a big lump of money and see what that does to your relationship. See if they talk down to you anymore, okay? See, I mean, I'm just, it's a silly, it's a silly analogy, but humanistically, you already know, like, wow, buy them a car. Buy them a house. See if they, if they uh, nag you about how dirty your room is anymore, right? It's gonna, it, it does something to the relationship, okay? So Paul has this idea. He's like, okay, I'm gonna get, and, and, he, and he gets this idea, right, from Galatians. Galatians, he meets up with uh, the, the top three, the big three, of the Jewish Christian mafia, right? He's just like, hey, all right, are we, we, are we good? Are we good? Like, you're going to do Jews, and I'm going to do the non-Jews. We're good. But you respect that? Is that okay? Right? And there's this whole narrative of how they don't give them the right hand of fellowship. I don't know exactly what this is, but it's like the secret handshake code, right? I mean, we accept you, right? And they finally give it to Barnabas. They give him the right, uh, the right hand of uh, friendship and the friendly handshake, Okay? And then James particularly says to them just one thing. Remember the poor in Jerusalem. Remember us. Because that is where the movement started. And because of immense persecution, the Jewish church, especially in Jerusalem and Antioch, they became, uh, uh, they became kind of communist, actually. They became very, they, where they shared their wealth, okay, but if you, I'm trying to be apolitical here, but if you don't have an uh, economic growing infrastructure, then wealth will deplete, basically, okay? This is, you can keep sharing and sharing and sharing, but if you're not actively growing your, your GDP or your economic growth, then wealth depletes, okay? And so that has been going on for a long time. I'm, I studied economics, so that's why it's so natural to me, okay? So he says, remember the poor, okay? Paul, help us, all right? So there's like this, 
this understanding here, all right? And so Paul, he does that. He does that. And all throughout, if you, if you read Corinthians, especially Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, if you read it, there is this, this theme, this development, this mission that Paul has that he's going to collect this love offering, this money from the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and to give it to the Jewish church, the poor Jewish church, okay? Now, here's where I'm going to make it relevant, okay? Okay, Eddie, great. What's the point, okay? The point is this. We're talking about inconvenience and vision, right? The most inconvenient thing you can do is ask for money, right? That, that is really hard for people, okay? If you've ever worked in sales, right? If you've ever been a church planter, <laughs> if you ever, ever try to raise money for yourself, asking for money. And if you are Asian, get out of here. It is, come on, that is really, really hard, okay? And, and it, it's like the worst thing, actually. I'll, I'll tell you, for those who are not Asian in the room, it's like the worst possible thing you can do, right? It's the most shame you can bring to yourself. That's kind of what we're taught. And Paul who comes from this Asian ancient culture as well, he's asking for money, right? He's asking, and it's is like, is like, for what, Paul? Well, this church and these guys that you've never met, and he's like, so he, and somehow he does it. He gets the churches, but without, there, it wasn't without adversity. It wasn't without consequences, all right? A whole, if you read Second Corinthians, basically they badmouth him and think that he's just trying to peddle money. They think he's skimming from the top. That's why he's forcing all these churches. They think he's a tax collector, kind of taking profit all these collections. And he's just like, oh my goodness, you don't know my vision. I'm trying to reconcile God's people, this race, into one unified race and not have this division anymore because there will no longer be Jew. No long, okay? So he has this incredible vision, right? But he faces inconvenience. And I'll, I'll read it. We'll read further in Romans, okay? Uh, he says, before I come, this is a major inconvenience. He's talking to Rome, okay? He's like in the map of Asia, all right? I'll show you how good my uh, carto- what is a map science? Cartography skills are, all right? There, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he's like in the middle of Asia Minor and Rome Italy is it's like a boot, right? Something like that. Rome's here, right? Jerusalem is here, right? He says, hey, I, I wanna, I'm going to come and see you. I'm going to go to Rome, but I'm going to go back this way. <laughs> and you're just like, why? Why would you go back that way? Because he says, I have, for you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem. They feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. Okay, again, and if you know that Paul is writing to Romans, Romans are a Jewish audience as well. So he's again trying to reconcile them. Okay? It's kind of a public relations move, honestly, right? And 
And, and he, it's so important that at the end of Romans, this is like almost the last thing he says in, in, the, in the letter to the Romans, all right? Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, all right? The reason why he's going all the way back to Jerusalem is because he's carrying all this cash, and he's hoping that when he brings it to Jerusalem, the original church, that they will be like, wow, maybe it was a good thing, Paul, that we sent you. Maybe it's a good thing because we're, we're struggling, we're starving, we're dying, and that people are blessed by us, that it, it, it is coming back and is helping us in dire need, right? So, this shapes this, I mean, to be honest, I mean, the, the Jews at this time were struggling with a lot of racial prejudice, right? Or racial discrimination. And, and when they are in this space of need, and the, the person that they think is lower than them, the people group that they think is worthless to them, quite honestly, is their salvation. Is their salvation. And this is a big, big mission, big task that Paul has done that doesn't, get, that doesn't get highlighted as much in the story of Paul or in the pulpit. But I want to tell you that one of Paul's legacy is not only bringing the gospel outside of the Jewish nation to us, the non-Jewish, I don't know if anyone's Jew in here, right? But to the nation, to the world, but also his legacy is racial reconciliation, okay? And all this to say, Paul, his vision, what made it big enough, what made it deep enough, is that he has this idea, he has this logic, okay, that somebody else's life depends on his vision. It's ingrained in him that if I do not do this, no one will. If I do not, if I do not take the gospel, how are they going to hear? No one's willing to go. If I don't do this traveling back, if I don't ask for money from the Asian churches to bring back to Jerusalem, how are these two races ever going to really respect, honor, love, reconcile, communicate to each other? All right? And it was brutal. He went through so much adversity to make that one cash deposit bank drop possible. Most significant bank drop in like human history of the universe, okay? But it was, it was the foundation of racial reconciliation. It was the foundation of what I would say all civil rights, all anti-bigot, all anti-discrimination ideology. It started with Paul and his willingness to inconvenience his life for this mission because he felt that other people's lives were at stake, okay? So from Paul, we learn that what, what, what makes our vision, what makes your vision big enough is when someone else's life, someone's life depends on your vision. 
when someone's life depends on whether or not you execute your vision or not, that is when you're willing to maybe inconvenience your life. Let go of the convenience because somebody else needs that. Somebody else needs you. You know, one of my other heroes uh, we celebrated this week. And that person is? Do you guys know? Really? Right? Okay, I was just making sure. I was like, do we not care about this band? Okay, so Martin Luther King, okay? Martin Luther King is uh, my other hero other than Paul, okay? And if you know that his legacy also is racial reconciliation, all right? His legacy, do you know that all of his life boiled down to one act, one movement, one piece of legislature? Do you know what that piece of legislature was? The what? Of? There's multiple. 1964. That is, man. Yeah, that deserves applause, okay? All right? So his whole life, all the all the pain and suffering that MLK endured, all right, it boiled down to a piece of legislature that got, uh, that got proposed by JFK, John F. Kennedy, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then JFK gets assassinated, okay? But, and this, and it almost didn't get passed, but Lyndon B. Johnson persuasively whipped all the, the legislature uh, of the lower house to vote it through. Barely passed. Barely passed. This is like real stuff. You got to know this, okay? Barely passed. But Lyndon B. Johnson signed it into law. Can you imagine that people were voting against the Civil Rights Act? They were voting pro-segregation. They were voting pro-discrimination. The right to discriminate. They were voting pro like uh, uh, to remove right or not give rights to African Americans or minorities. It's actually we actually benefit a lot if, if you're not Caucasian. Okay, any minority group actually benefits from the Civil Rights Act. Okay, can you imagine? People voted no. Okay, but the pinnacle, the thing that sparked the movement. Okay, and granted. Martin Luther King went through a lot of adversity that people don't know. Not only was he assassinated, but he was arrested and jailed 20 times. All right? His, his house and his family had bomb threats. Okay? Bomb threats for what he was doing. That's pretty inconvenient. All right? He had a life of, he had a very inconvenient life, and he chose to inconvenience it even more. Okay? He was at a book signing where a middle-aged black woman stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener. Do you know that story? Yeah. Are you Martin Luther King? He's like, yes, I am. Boom! Right in the chest with a letter opener, okay? That, this, this is some of the adversity this man went, and eventually he got shot, and he died. All right? But the pinnacle of how he moved that legislation is because he had one speech. One moment in history, and it was his moment. And you know what that moment was? When he was in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and he gave this message called... I have a dream. Okay? I have a dream. We started with Steve Jobs. We're ending with MLK. Okay? The two most 
pivotal speeches in modern Western history, okay? And it's an amazing speech. Have you heard it? Has anyone really heard it? Like, sat and listened to it? Or you just know about it? You should really listen to it. And just, it's not that long, okay? Like 15 minutes, maybe. And, and there has been so much communication psychology and analysis of what made this speech so powerful, so great. Almost to the point where they have, they hooked up uh, um, pulse, sensory, emotional graphs and levels of people that listen to them. When they, and what are the moments that emotions and the heart pulsates and, 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 and spikes the emotion, the oxytocin? Like, there are these pivotal moments, there's these lines that Martin Luther King hits. And I found it fascinating which lines, which quotes of the speech connected and powerfully moved people. All right? Does anyone know any quote from that speech? I've been to the mouth to tell you. That's, a, that's an easy one, okay? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go through a few of them, okay? This is the first one where people have this emotional spike, okay? He says, I have a dream that one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Now, click it one more time. If you notice, all right, this is one of the spikes in connection, in emotions that people felt when Martin Luther King gave this speech or today when he gives this speech, okay? And, it, and he says amazing, amazing things all throughout. Any line that he says could be a quote. But why particularly these? It's because he literally personifies who will receive the blessing the results of what he is talking about. Who will receive the benefit? Who is the person in need of what he is fighting for? It personifies. Little black boys, little black girls, little white boys. Even He doesn't stop there. That's another part of it too. He doesn't start with little black boys and girls. He also says, and the little white boys and girls. Right? That's the first one. You see this emotional spike. Okay? Second quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Very, very famous passage and quote from Martin Luther King, I have a dream, right? And again, this is another line where people uproared when they heard this. Their emotions and their hearts want to leap out of their chest again. And it gives us a little insight on what was driving Martin Luther King. What made his vision deep enough for him to go through everything he went through? And we see it. You click it one more time. He's, he personifies in his mind, my four little children will not be judged. He is, again, personifying, calling out, being specific. Who are the people whose lives depend on what we are trying to accomplish? He personifies it. He calls them out. And he says, what were they benefiting? All right? Here's the last one. And this is actually, this is his dagger. 
This is the line that is known to be the dagger of it all, the, the, the creme de la creme, the, the, the Mortal Kombat fatality, okay, of, of the I have a dream speech, okay? And this is the last one, okay? I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, all right, I feel like the spirit of Dr. King in me, right? The sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at a table of brotherhood. Click it one more time. The sons of slaves and the sons of slave owners at a table of brotherhood. This is the image that caused people to see what Martin Luther King was trying to accomplish. And who will benefit? Whose lives depend on what they are trying to accomplish? All right? I'll tell you, that piece of legislature was not going to pass before I have a dream speech. There was, there was no way. And it barely passed with two people murdered for it. Okay? Amazing. Amazing. But again, it gives us some insight onto what, what made his vision big enough. What made his vision deep enough where he would go through inconveniencing his life that much? For what? For liberty? For freedom? For equality? All of us want those things in this room, right? All of us. All of us believe in those things. But when he personified, when he articulated and specified who will benefit from my vision. Who? Whose life depends on me standing up here and giving this speech and risking my own life? Whose life depends on my vision? I think it's incredibly profound. And so I give it back to you. What makes your vision big enough, deep enough? Because if you're in the... In the um, if you're in the mindset of bigger, higher, loftier, more money, more power, more whatever, that's great. That's great. But the minute it inconveniences your life, you're going to abort. You're going to pull the parachute out of that plane and look for a different vision. But what really, and I, I want to say this, I want to specify, you have your vision Add on to it. Make it deeper. Have the same vision, but make it deeper. Whose life depends on your vision? Whose life depends on your calling? Because if, if you're the sole and only beneficiary of your vision, we love our convenience way more. Somebody else's life has to depend and you fulfilling your calling. And that's how we make our visions deep enough, big enough. Thanks for listening, and we want to invite you to stay connected with us. Find us on Instagram at HugChurch or at HugChurch.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed this, won't you hit that lovely subscribe button and leave us a comment? We would absolutely love to connect. Until next week, a huge hug from Eddie and myself.